history may judge us quite harshly for how we treat animals on, on factory farms. And one easy step makes a huge difference. If you just do not eat chickens, you win almost all of our support for the horrors of factory farms. It's hard to believe, but the math is really simple. Not eating chickens cuts out almost all the cruelty from our diets, no matter what you eat instead. So please take this one step of replacing chickens on your plate. Visit OneStepMatters.com to learn how easy it is to get on the right side of history. I don't think you should ever have me if you expect an optimistic ending. Hello and welcome to The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Dara Lind. We have a bit of an odd host situation this week because Matt is on vacation, Ezra is still on book leave, and Sarah, while she was still hanging around the office as of yesterday, certainly shouldn't be here. She should be having her baby. So in the hopes of encouraging that, we have given her dispensation. On Friday, we're going to have another Ask Weeds Anything episode, the one we asked you guys for questions about a few weeks ago. That's going to be up. But for today, I am kind of bringing some of Vox's best and brightest in to talk to us about things. I've currently got Tara Golshan and Ellen Nielsen, two of our Hill reporters here, to talk about some of the uh, border and family separation stuff that's been happening because both of them know more about immigration than anybody else on the Hill. And I do not say that lightly because... Yikes. Well, no. <laughs> okay. I don't know about they, that. Know, they know a fair bit about immigration is the point, and I trust them. So I know that you guys discussed some of this stuff while I was out in Australia, but in case you, like me, were out of the country or have otherwise been living under a rock, the United States is currently making a general practice of separating families if they arrive in the United States between ports of entry. That's instead of going to an official border crossing, they cross the border illegally. The parents are being separated and prosecuted criminally for illegal entry in most cases. The children are being sent through a system that traditionally is set up for unaccompanied children entering the U.S. without parents, which is something that I think hasn't been explored a ton and that I want us to get into today. There have been really good accounts of what is happening when families get separated. There have been some really good news stories from people who have been at the border. But one of the things that I think this news story has kind of pulled up is that there's a poorly understood and under-resourced kind of pseudo-child welfare infrastructure that's being used now for these children who have been separated from their families but has already been in existence for some time. So, Ella, I was kind of hoping, I know you've been doing some reporting about this, and I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about, you know, as someone who hasn't been as familiar with, like, immigration stuff, but certainly knows about how policy is supposed to work, what are your thoughts about how this kind of Office of Refugee Resettlement child system is working. Can you kind of walk us through what's supposed to be happening and what is actually happening in these cases? Well, kind of ironically, I mean, the the reason that we all started talking about this was like a few weeks ago. I I can't remember who released the first story, but, you know, CNN released a story about, you know, the the missing children, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, sort of like this idea that that ORR had like lost thousands of children. And ironically, like that is not the big story here. As our colleague Sarah Cliff wrote when you were out on vacation, missing children are the children that have just been settled with sponsors like family members or or other people that can care for them. And, you know, the fact that the government couldn't make contact with them, you know, generally probably means that they are safe, hopefully safe and secure with a family member um, and, and things are going fine. But this huge blow up over, you know, the government lost thousands of children, like took over the real story here, which is. These kids that um, end up in OR custody that don't get placed with family members and are facing increasing barriers to be getting placed with family members and sponsors um, and when they're separated from their parents. So, I mean, what we know right now, right now there are more than 10,000 migrant children in the custody of the U.S. government. I've heard, you know, maybe around 11,000 from from some lawyers. And so these kids end up getting placed in ORR um, facilities in these range. It's like a varying levels of some resettlement facilities, like where they come and, and talk to caseworkers and things like that. And then the government decides, do they step up placement in more secure facilities like 
juvenile detention facilities for, I think, a limited number of kids. Um, There's still a lot that we don't know about this, but I think that there's a lot going on here where ORR is typically thought of as, and, and you can probably talk more about this, but, you know, as, as thought of as a humanitarian part of, of the government agency. And it, right. And like it's, cre- you know, there's like it's called the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Right. And I think a lot of people kind of think of it as as that rather than as this, you know, the thing, the function it's been having to serve over the last several years is increasing numbers of unaccompanied kids have come across. Right. From what I've heard from a lot of immigration lawyers and, and other people working on this stuff, it's increasingly becoming an arm of law enforcement and an arm of DHS. That is certainly very concerning for advocates, for immigration lawyers, for these families themselves that are, are separated and these kids that, you know, whether they're unaccompanied minors or, or separated from their families are separated from their parents. That is in itself very traumatic. And yeah, it's an issue that I think has just sort of it's it's been going on for a while, but it's really like bubbled up in the past few weeks. And to be clear, the White House is being very explicit about this. They're yes. saying that ORR and HHS is working in tandem with DHS and ICE and they're they're promoting this as a great development that their administration is pushing. Yeah, I, I want to step back a little bit because this is definitely this kind of like weaponization of a part of the immigration system that isn't usually thought of as a part of immigration enforcement is, I think, a big story here. But it's worth bearing in mind that this isn't a case of this agency is extremely good at doing X and they're now being told to do Y. Like, not to cast any aspersions on individual, you know, Office of Refugee Resettlement employees or any of that, but this is a story of an agency that, because it's not part of DHS— isn't usually thought of as a place where immigration money needs to go. You know, if you've ever heard me talk about the immigration court system, this is usually what comes up, that because it's part of DOJ, it just doesn't get the kind of budgetary attention that ICE and Customs and Border Protection got during the 2000s. Something similar is true of the Office of Refugee Resettlement. So since even before 2014, which is when the issue of unaccompanied minors coming into the U.S. kind of first breached public attention— The Office of Refugee Resettlement was stretched extremely thin. They had a lot of trouble figuring out a balance between placing children with relatives in a timely fashion so that they weren't just holding them indefinitely in government holding facilities and making sure that they were screening people adequately so that they weren't releasing kids to human traffickers, which was, you know, the big fear that this kind of 1,500 lost children story indicated uh, and where there have been some cases of kids getting turned over to people who did not have their best interests in mind and, in fact, were essentially using them for labor trafficking. So it's fascinating to me as someone who— was at Vox way back in the day in 2014 when we were talking about this in the context of kids who were coming across unaccompanied, that in the four years between now and then, there's been, you know, not a ton of attention from Congress or from even kind of other policymakers in let's make sure that there are the resources for these unaccompanied children. And now we're seeing this kind of added problem of children being separated from families. The, the kind of other thing that I want to highlight, you know, Ella, I know that you've kind of hinted at this, but the children who are coming across unaccompanied and being placed with relatives, that is a fundamentally different situation, right? Those are usually cases in which children do have either parents or close relatives who are already in the United States. The last time there was a government report about this, 2014-2015, like, 60% of children who were getting released were getting released to their parents. And those weren't cases where their parents were in immigration detention. Their parents were living in the U.S. And they're also, you know, they're more likely to be teenagers because those are who you can send without parental supervision, like through Mexico for three weeks. So now there are stories coming out. There was a story in the Times by Miriam Jordan last week, we'll put it in the show notes, about kind of these transitional foster facilities that have been fostering for a few weeks or months some children who can talk to their parents every night, you know, who know where their parents are, and now are having to deal with these, like, five-year-olds who don't have any idea what's going on with their parents. That that seems like a substantial shift yes. for the agency. And I'm, I'm wondering what you're seeing and kind of 
what the immigration lawyers you've been talking to are seeing about how they're equipped to deal with something like that. How the kids are equipped to deal with it. I mean, the kids in the system. Well, I think that it's it is a noticeable shift from the Obama administration to the Trump administration, where under the Obama administration, you know, the kids were still getting placed in, in OR custody. But as you said, it would be for shorter periods of time. And the goal eventually would be to release them to their parents or release them to a family member or find some some way to get them out of custody. And from what I'm hearing, that's no longer the goal. <laughs> the goal is to make it harder for family members and sponsors to get these kids because especially if they are undocumented themselves, they don't want to show up to ORR for fear that their information could be passed along to DHS or ICE and, and they could then face deportation. It, it seems to be that these kids are in these facilities for longer periods of time, especially if they are kids that have psychiatric issues that's in, at times, you know, these like cases are being built up against them, either saying this is why we need to keep these kids in here for longer periods of time or this is potentially, you know, grounds for deportation. So that is a fundamental shift from what I've been hearing from from lawyers from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. It is a fundamental ideological shift for how they're operating. So the reason that this is so wild to me is that you started this conversation by bringing up the kind of the lost kids, the like yes. freak out over why aren't these families contacting HHS? And we now have a very good reason why these families might not want to yes. contact HHS. And it's like, again, you know, Tara, this is something that the White House has been saying pretty explicitly that, you know, they want to be able to prosecute people. They have done some saber rattling about if your child comes across the border unaccompanied, we'll prosecute you as traffickers. The reason that this is so interesting to me in the current context is that that same rhetoric, it sounds like, is getting used when we're talking about families who come with their children. Like Jeff Sessions has been saying things like, by definition, if you come across the border with your child, you're a smuggler. And it's not just that that isn't right in the legal definition. If you're seeking asylum, you're like, you're not smuggling yourself or your child. But also, it just seems like a very strange understanding of kind of the politics of this. And like, I'm kind of looking at you both as someone who covers politics, but also was around during the travel ban stuff. It really seems like this has exposed an outrage in the system that we we haven't seen this kind of public attention to stuff since those days. Right. I mean, I, I see both in the travel ban and in this case of the, the administration's policy here is to create a lot of skepticism about who these people are that are crossing the border, right? So that's when we're talking about asylum seekers and saying that everyone who crosses the border, even if they're wanting to seek asylum, which is a legal thing to do, we're raising questions about them and we're prosecuting them. And that was the same kind of feeling that came around the travel ban. It was that everyone was a person of question. Um, and there's a lot of kind of unclarity and chaos that comes around that kind of policy directive because at the end of the day, it's at the discretion of who's on the ground enforcing these rules. And as we saw with the travel ban, that can range from someone having just a little bit of a harder time crossing the border to someone getting stuck in detention for very, very long periods of time, which you covered. Um, yeah. yeah. I want to take a break, but I do want to delve into that a little bit, because if we're talking about people on the ground, we should probably be talking about that in some detail. Hi there, listeners of The Weeds. I'm Kara Swisher, the editor-at-large at Recode. I want to tell you about an interview I just published on my podcast, Recode Decode. At the Code Conference this year, Peter Kafka and I interviewed U.S. Senator Mark Warner from Virginia. We talked about cybersecurity, Russian election meddling, China's tech industry, and whether American tech companies should be regulated more. That answer is yes, by the way. Oh, and also whether the Democrats in Congress should impeach President Trump. Once again, the name of the show is Rico Decode, hosted by me, Kara Swisher. You can find it wherever you listen to The Weeds. See you there. So, Tara, I'm glad you brought us to the exceedingly weedsy question of, you know, what is the difference between what the policy is getting, you know, how the policy is getting described kind of in these general terms and what people are actually saying on the ground. Something that really has struck me reading some of these stories from reporters who are at the border is that... Some Border Patrol agents are lying to parents when they take their kids away from them. They're saying, oh, you know, we're just taking your kids for a bath. Right. And then they get shipped out to somewhere. We're just taking your kids for questioning briefly. But some of them are being not only very, you know, upfront about 
we're taking your children away from you because this is the consequence of you breaking the law, which is the official government line. But like they're going further than that and saying Pramila Jayapal, who's a Democratic member of Congress from Washington, visited a facility in Washington state where a lot of women are being held after being separated from their children. She said that some of them were told, we don't have families here. You know, you're never getting your children back, which is not it's certainly not the government's line. But it does raise some questions about, you know, how invested the government actually is in in dealing with the consequences of this policy and reuniting families. And hearing those stories, all I could think of was we only know about these things happening because we have people at the border, just like we had people at airports like you during the travel ban. Like you hear these individual anecdotes and it doesn't seem like that is the whole story, but you have to piece them together to figure out what the heck is actually going on. Right. And I, I mean, that's especially for for immigration advocates and for lawyers who are trying to give some legal counsel to people, it creates incredible difficulties because you there is no uniformity on how these directives are being enforced, it seems. I mean, I'm reading the same reports as you are. I'm obviously not on the border. I'm sitting in the podcast studio in D.C. And yeah, it is really shocking at, at times the different messages these immigrants are getting. I mean, going back to making this connection to the travel ban, I remember being in the airport talking to the lawyers. They had received a court order that they were allowed to give legal counsel to the immigrants trying to come in or even visitors trying to come in. And they were operating on rumors of what Border Patrol people were telling them. And between airports, I'm sure those rumors were wildly different. I happened to be in Dulles and they were operating on five different kind of presumptions of what people were being told what the directive is from DOJ to what's actually playing out on the ground and then what effect that has for people who think that they have a legitimate case of asylum and want to come into this country. Like those three steps, there's no clear line through them. Ella, you brought up the sense that immigration lawyers have that there's been this policy change between the Obama administration and the Trump administration. It sounds like kind of the same thing, right? And and this sounds, this is similar to what like, I was just talking to a lawyer yesterday about uh, something else kind of in immigration, so but not totally related to this. And she's going, the impression we have is that this is a policy change, but we've kind of gotten that from how individual cases have worked out. And that sounds like that's what the lawyers you're talking to are dealing with as well. How are they trying to deal with that as a policy issue? They're piecing together various information and they don't even know what the directive is that's coming down. Yeah, I think that they're sort of trying to to deal with this like piecemeal as it comes. But I mean, I think that the biggest like policy change and and like as Tara was saying earlier, like this is clearly the Trump administration is being is trying to be very clear about all these things that they're doing. And it's like clearly a deterrent policy. But it, that's not really working, I don't think, because it's hard to communicate that information to people that are trying to cross the border and are trying to make, you know, a journey from from Central America. And also, like, you know, things are pretty bad in El Salvador and, and Guatemala and Honduras, you know, like places that people are fleeing gang violence. And, you know, like one of the lawyers that I talked to yesterday was like these kids that she's dealing with. She was like, these kids are incredibly smart. They're incredibly perceptive. And after Trump was elected, like they were asking, is it going to be harder for me to come into the United States? They get it. But at the same time, like they're still probably going to try to make the journey. So, yes, like these policies, like this is all winds up to the Trump administration is trying to make it harder for these people to come into the United States. And they're trying to send a clear message to these people that it is you are not welcome here. This is we're going to make your lives extremely difficult here. We're going to separate you from your kids. I mean, Jeff Sessions literally said, like, if these if these families don't want to be separated, they shouldn't bring their kids into the United States with them. Like they're they are trying to in a very cruel way, discourage people from coming here. That's a really, really good synthesis of all this. I think that when people talk about deterrence, a lot of things try to get kind of get confused. So I want to kind of drill into that a little bit because you're right. There are two different things going on, right? There is the trying to send a message that people shouldn't come and trying to make it harder for people to come. And frankly, a lot of the kind of treatment issues, the like separating families, isn't making it harder for people to come. It's using treatment of like things will be bad for you once you're here to like try to hack the message that's getting sent to people in Central America. There's pretty good evidence that information networks for migration like this are pretty robust, that like, yeah, they can be hacked by smugglers 
back in 2014 and then again in 2016, there were rumors that smugglers were saying that there was some kind of amnesty that like if you if you paid up now, they were offering a special deal so that you could get into the U.S. before the amnesty ended. And like, yeah, there are definitely issues like that. But in general, people have strong enough networks that they know that if someone from their village went to the U.S. and is still there, that like that's you know, that means that maybe they have a shot at staying. If somebody tried to go to the U.S., you know, ended up in Mexico, didn't make it all the way to U- to the U.S., or if they tried to go to the U.S. but then got sent back immediately, like, that information works too. So the reason that we're kind of having this conversation politically is because the Trump administration came into office, saw border apprehensions drop hugely from their already low baseline and went, we've solved the problem, when in fact, without things changing on the ground, people ended up figuring out pretty quickly that there wasn't the big difference in what was happening at the border that they'd imagined. And so apprehensions started creeping back up. So now they're treating this as some kind of temporary surge that they want to get apprehensions back down to the level of last year. But instead of just kind of sweeping into office and saying, we've fixed it, they're trying to actually change these things. And this is where the Sessions thing comes in, because it wasn't what Jeff Sessions did. And this is something that, you know, I've kind of flagged on the site a few times about how Sessions has been using a historically latent power that the attorney general has to kind of issue diktats for immigration judges uh, and kind of use the fact that it's an administrative law system to change the interpretation of the law. And so Sessions yesterday issued a ruling that said that a previous case by the quasi-appellate body of immigration judges uh, had been wrongly decided and that you can't get asylum just for having your life in danger. You have to argue that you're being persecuted based on one of five characteristics. And one of those characteristics is being a member of a particular social group, which is kind of an elastic term that's been used to argue that domestic violence survivors, you know, because they're being targeted in part based on their gender or teenage boys who are being targeted by gangs because they're of recruitable age but refuse to join a gang, that groups like that should count as particular social groups because they are so clearly endangered in their home countries and their government is so unwilling or unable to protect them. Sessions, he literally said, generally, domestic violence and gang violence victims do not have claims to asylum in the United States. But what he put in a footnote for that was that means they can't pass a credible fear interview either. And that means that the initial screening interview that somebody goes through when they're apprehended by Border Patrol or when they present themselves at a port of entry, the thing that kind of leads to people being put in immigration detention for months while they're pursuing their case or being even released into the community with an ankle bracelet while they're pursuing their case. What Jeff Sessions' ruling says is that people shouldn't be able to pass that interview just because they are victims of gang violence or they're worried about gang violence, even if that is like mortal danger to them. And that, I think, is really what is interesting to me because – That actually does change treatment, not just how much people are suffering once they're in the U.S., but how long they're able to stay there. And and this is kind of somewhat speculative, but because we have so little information about how this process is working, I think it's worth pointing out. There are parents who are not yet able to make their asylum claims because they're still in jail waiting for their trials while their kids have been put into the system because – as unaccompanied kids, they like are put into deportation proceedings already. If the parents are going to be subject once they are sentenced, because they're usually just sentenced to time served, to this higher screening, that is going to make it much harder for the parent to even get put in immigration detention. And I don't know what that means for the parent's ability to locate the child. It also, I think, does have implications for some of these kids who have been kind of in the U.S. thinking that they might have a case. I'm wondering how much the the immigration lawyers that you've been talking to have kind of, how much are they operating under the presumption that these families are, are going to be able to get reunited either in the U.S. or in their home countries? Is it kind of an assumption at this point that, you know, the kids are in one arm of the system and the parents are in another arm and that that's yeah, I mean, I haven't really talked to them. I've, I've mostly sort of been focused on like what, you know, what is happening when they're being detained. But yeah, I think, you know, in a lot of these cases, I don't think that there is a lot of hope that this can work out. I mean, it it does, like like you said, I mean, it does feel like these kids are sent sometimes to facilities that are completely 
separate from where their parents are. Um, you know, they could be sent to a facility that's all the way across the country and not really know where their parents are, the parents not knowing where the kids are. So, yeah, it, it's it's really difficult. I honestly also can't really answer this from a point of, of great authority knowing what's going on. But I would say that lawyers that I've talked to, there's not a lot of hope. Um, and they're just sort of trying to to challenge the system as it is right now. Tara, I mean, we've been talking about how the White House has been framing this, and it sounds like it's a totally different conversation from like everyone who has any contact with this system appears to be somewhere between baffled and horrified, right? Like, regardless of the kind of feelings you might have about border enforcement, about whether people have legitimate asylum claims, it seems fairly non-controversial to say that the administration did not have a plan for reuniting families and that there hasn't been a lot of proactive training and effort to how the family separation policy is being implemented. But like the White House appears to be treating this as some kind of sometimes it's kind of a necessary evil and sometimes it sounds like a positive good. I'm just wondering, how are you seeing this not necessarily playing out like legislatively, but playing out politically? Is this the travel ban where the administration is going to be forced to back down? Or is it something like, you know, where they've been going with interior apprehensions and ICE enforcement where like progressives are extremely mad, but the White House is pleased that they are getting a reputation for being tough. Every White House conversation that um, or press call that I have been on on this subject, whenever talk of politics comes up and mitigating the the pain of this kind of process and how legislatively we can mitigate the pain of this process. Um, the White House's message is, well, it's the Democrats' fault and it's their law and they should fix it. When you ask them what law they're talking about, it kind of gets a little bit murkier and because there isn't one. But I think this conversation is in this weird place where in Congress, I don't get the sense that people are who are even denouncing, like conservatives who are denouncing children being separated from their families really have a true grasp of why it's happening, or they do when they're pushing the White House message of it's the Democrats' fault. And it just seems stuck in this kind of partisan stalemate over that. And as far as immigration conversations go, it's not part of their big immigration reform debate that's sort of happening on the Hill right now anyways. But it is really shocking to me to hear kind of how little movement there is on this issue and how kind of stuck it is in this, oh, it's a Democrat's fault and Democrats being like, how? How is it our fault? And also like Democrats are the only ones trying to advance bills to solve it. I mean, there's like a couple. Yeah, there are a couple some of, messaging bills. Yeah. I mean, there are a couple of pieces of legislation that Congresswoman Lucille Robel Allard, um, I think uh, Zoe Lofgren, Senator Tina Smith from Minnesota. You know, the, these are bills that would basically try to reunite families faster and and try to give parents um, who are separated from their children at the border some more protections to like place them in care, give them more of a voice in family court, things like that. But you know, right. under the current let, Congress, let this them be is not, involved in like yeah. their children's hearings, for example. Yes, exactly. But that's not going to go anywhere. No. And those are also kind of like tinkering around the edges. I mean, like it makes sense because these aren't things that, like you said, Tara, there there is no law. Like right. the the reason that the administration has not named a single quote unquote democratic law is that this is fundamentally the consequence of the administration a starting apparently last year, kind of doing more to put parents and children in separate detention facilities and B, announcing this spring that it was adopting a zero tolerance policy and referring as many people who cross between ports of entry as possible to for criminal prosecution for illegal entry. For the record, it's still not at an actual like 100 percent rate. And for that matter, there still are a lot of families who are not being separated, at least as of last month. The data we have indicates that we're talking about hundreds of families being separated, but that thousands of families are coming in. And we don't know exactly how many of the people who are coming in are, are being separated. But like it's the result of a policy decision. And it's a policy decision that no one really thinks shouldn't be the executive branch's ability, right? Like no one is proposing a bill that it should be illegal to refer people for prosecution for illegal right. entry. Right. Like for that matter, you know, the kind of changes that you would have to have to the asylum system to prevent things like what Jeff Sessions just did would be like changing the way immigration courts work so that they can no longer have precedential decisions issued by the attorney general. Like that's something that 
immigration judges themselves and a lot of advocates have been saying is a good idea for a while, but it's a radical change. So you kind of had these like two nodes of things. The small bore good government would almost certainly probably give much needed resources to a situation that is super under-resourced, super under-scrutinized, stuff that would ideally be non-controversial because even if you believe that law enforcement should work efficiently, having an efficient system is better. And these kind of radical, yes, let's change the way that the immigration system operates things. Right. As far as the law line goes, I mean, the closest I could kind of bring that to reality was that maybe they're talking about that if you cross the border illegally, it is illegal. And that is that's the law that we're talking about. But it's it's so vague and so clear that there's no understanding of who is who has purview over what going on. Oh, man, my theory is different. And I, I hate to launch into another monologue, but I like my reading of this is that what the Trump administration would ideally like to do is turn everybody back the minute they get to the border. I mean, that that appears to be the ideal Uh, There are things that prevent them from doing that in the case of families and in the case of asylum seekers and in the case of unaccompanied kids. Uh, In the case of asylum seekers, that's the, you know, the the laws defining what it looks like to have a credible fear of persecution and therefore be allowed to stay and plead your case. You know, what it looks like to qualify for asylum. That's the kind of stuff that Sessions is tinkering with. On the family side, it's this thing called the Flores Settlement from the 1990s that set strict limits on when the government could have children in immigration detention. That is what has led to the relatively small but resurgent use of keeping children with their mothers in family detention, which itself isn't something that you can do for more than a few weeks without proving that this particular family is going to abscond if you don't keep them there. And that is what some administration figures kind of point to as, well, we would like to keep the whole family in immigration detention. We can't do that. It's the fault of this settlement that we can't do that. And this is where I think there's a kind of galaxy brain thinking going on in the administration that insofar as they understand that they're getting a lot of pushback for this, they think that if they turn it into, well, We don't want to be separating families. It would be better for us if we could keep families together in detention. Therefore, we should change this settlement. You know, we should pass a law that addresses the issues that this settlement raised so that children can be put in detention indefinitely. That doesn't seem like something that, you know, even the people who are skeptical of ORR think of as a superior solution. I feel like in a a world where we didn't have a gajillion other issues, we would kind of see an attempt by the White House to force a showdown on this. But like— think they have enough on their hands. Uh, with that, I am going to let these two go to the Hill, bring in Vox's Herman Lopez, because it's Tuesday. So, of course, we have a white paper for you. So welcome to Herman, who has, has magically appeared in the spot in which Tara was previously sitting. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. So, Herman, you brought a paper to my attention that I'm super excited to talk about because uh, we have talked you know, some about kind of government drug policy on the weeds. We have not talked a ton about kind of broader social problems of addiction. And this is something that I know you've been super interested in and have done, you know, great work on that we'll put in the show notes. But kind of this question of like, how effective are alcohol recovery programs like AA? And something that you mentioned to me that I still do not understand why it is the case is that No one is doing good studies on this. No one is doing good studies in particular of kind of whether AA is more or less effective than kind of alternative programs. Why the heck hasn't this been studied before? And like what makes this white paper that you've brought to my attention kind of so interesting? So, yeah, I would say that there are some people now doing good research on it. I mean, this paper is obviously a testament to that. But I think in general, it's just a giant status quo bias for a long time. It's just been kind of assumed in the U.S. that – the way you get into recovery, the way you recover from addiction is just getting into this 12-step track, like whether that's Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. And until the 90s, there really wasn't very good research into whether 
AA and other 12-step programs even worked. So for decades, we just assumed, yeah, of course. Like We, we had this crack cocaine epidemic in the 80s, obviously, and the, the assumption was, oh, of course, you just get into this 12-step path and you'll get into treatment. And like at that time, we actually did not have good data, good research showing that it, it's even very effective in the first place. So uh, when we say 12-step programs, kind of what defines a 12-step program and what are the things that researchers think as like being what makes those tick? So a 12-step program generally is, if you're talking about like a professional treatment setting, like AA, the actual organization will tell you they are not explicitly endorsing any treatment program. A 12-step program in a professional treatment setting instead is kind of, um, it's like a program that tries to facilitate your participation in a 12-step program, whether it's AA or NA. So it like walks you through the process of how you would join one of these meetings and like make sure you keep you keep up in these meetings, maybe does some like uh, other therapies on the side, like uh, cognitive behavioral therapies or some other like other formal treatment modalities. But the, the idea is really to facilitate participation in 12-step programs. So what are kind of the other ways that you could do recovery or like the other kind of models that and then we'll get into this white paper that that could be done. So generally there there's like a, a lot of options. So there's mutual help groups, which is kind of like A. Like A is a mutual help group in that it you go to these meetings, you talk to other people there, you walk through these problems, people walk through their experiences, and it's like people learn from each other, they provide each other social support. And so the idea is like really you, you foster this, this uh, like these social links, this social network that will help somebody stay sober. There are other approaches. There's cognitive behavioral therapy, which is kind of like it's it's a professional like uh, psychological treatment where it, they uh, essentially a, a like a trained medical professional will walk you through like some tricks, some ways to reorient your thinking and try to like get you like like I think one example is if if you're in a party with lots of alcohol around, they'll teach you well what are some of the things that will help you avoid getting the temptation or like, what are some of the things that will help you overcome the temptation to drink? Um, so that's kind of what cognitive behavioral therapy does. There are a bunch of other interventions, and there's, like, motivational interviewing. And generally the idea is, like, they'll walk you through ways to avoid drinking, even when you're in settings where it's really tempting. And then there are also, for alcohol, there are medications like naltrexone, which help you essentially deal with cravings for alcohol. There's also antabuse, which will make it so when you drink, you feel really sick and that kind of thing. So... There are a bunch of approaches, but generally in the U.S., I mean, treatment facilities, most of them are at least partly based on 12 steps. Gotcha. So this white paper is called A Longitudinal Study of the Comparative Efficacy of Women for Sobriety, Life Ring, Smart Recovery, and 12-Step Groups for Those with AUD, which is Alcohol Use Disorder. Right. Uh, and it's by several researchers led by Sarah Isamore. Uh, all of them are from the Alcohol Research Group in California. And so... What kind of makes this study different? Can you kind of walk us through it? Sure. The biggest thing with this study is it's like the first to really compare a 12-step approach with these alternatives, so Smart Recovery, Life Ring, and Women for Sobriety. And these are other mutual help groups that in some ways do what a lot of what AA does, meaning you go to meetings and you talk to people about alcohol use disorder, other problems in your life, and that kind of thing. But this is really the first study to like compare these outcomes. And it uses a survey that followed up with people at six months and then 12 months, uh, essentially asking people like that they're participating in the program and then evaluating that based on drug and alcohol-related outcomes. And what's interesting about this study is that it found essentially that there are no significant differences between in outcomes or participation between these groups, which suggests all of these are pretty much as effective. And th there were some differences in the raw data in that LifeRing and Smart Recovery may have had some worse outcomes here and there, but those, when you controlled for recovery goals, the those differences washed away. The thinking is that somebody who joins LifeRing or Smart might not be as determined to be totally abstinent. Their goal might be to, I'm going to moderate my drinking instead of drinking mm -hmm. as much. Whereas 12 Steps in AA really emphasize total abstinence. And these other groups, uh, in some cases, I don't want to say all of them because it varies from group to group, but they might be more open to just moderating your drinking instead. But So once you control for that, the differences all wash away. And, and that's, that's essentially the big finding here is that these groups are all similarly effective. So... 
if this is a kind of case of as long as you have people around you, this is going to to work out, like, is this essentially a finding that it's just peer pressure? Or what is it that kind of makes for, if all of these are equally kind of efficacious, aha, that's a word, uh, <laughs> like what are the kind of mechanisms within mutual aid groups that allow people to kind to pursue their recovery goals in a way they wouldn't be able to otherwise? Right. So I think one thing, I, I should have said this, but uh, there is some research showing that a and 12-step programs are actually effective for people. So it's not like these are all similarly effective and they don't work, right? So there's generally, when I've talked to researchers about this, they like describe this as a rule of thirds in that 12-step programs will work really well for a third of people, kind of work for another third, and then not work at all for the last third. Um, so what this shows is that essentially when you look at these, these groups, what they do similarly is that, yes, you go to these meetings, you have this social support, you learn lessons. One researcher I had talked to in the past sort of said that it, it is kind of like you're doing cognitive behavioral therapy in these settings because people are teaching you through their own experience by describing their own experience how they get through, like, temptations to drink and that kind of thing. And that you, you pick up tricks here and there and, and that kind of thing. Normally when it comes to 12 steps, a lot of what – like 12 Steps itself and some of its members will emphasize the spiritual aspect of it, which is like by far the most controversial part of this program because a lot of people do not want to tie getting better from addiction with being religious or spiritual or that kind of thing. And while that is that does seem to be effective for some people, for some people the spirituality is really important, this study shows that it's not a necessary component because these other groups, some of them are explicitly – not spiritual, and and they really emphasize that they're secular. I mean, Life Ring has secular in its name, full name, Life Ring Secular. So it's like, it, it's it's important to look at that because it shows that what what's really happening is it's kind of like peer pressure, like you said, but it, it's really just this social support. So if you're somebody with addiction, for a lot of your life, you might have been in this environment where all your friends are drinking or using drugs. And if you're in that environment, it's really easy to relapse because obviously the temptation is there all the time. But this gives you a community where you can go to and they are not drinking all the time. They, they might actually be resistant to drinking most or all of the time. And that gives you a place to go, not, not just to like socialize with, but also just people to call when you have a temptation to drink. Like if 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 you have a, an alcohol use disorder and you call somebody who has never had an addiction, they might not understand what you're going through when you're at that party and there's a bunch of booze around and you don't want to drink. They might not fully understand it. So this gives you at least like a sponsor in the case of AA or other kinds of – or other members that you've talked with along the way. And that's really what seems to make these groups effective. It's it's not so much the spiritual aspect, although that is important for some people. It's, it's these other social aspects of, the, of these programs. Yeah, I mean, the fascinating thing for me is, and I had not known about, you know, I, I generally understood that AA was controversial because of the spiritual aspect and that therefore, you know, people who were more secular were less likely to find it the right answer for them. But the, the explicitly secular roots of some of these, in addition to Life Ring, which is currently existent, you know, there's a, a former group that they talk about some in the lit review that is no longer holding meetings, but that is also, you know, that, that was explicitly secular called the Secular Organization for Sobriety. And that previous research had found that less religious people were less likely to succeed if they were trying 12-step than more religious people were, but that more religious people were less likely to succeed if they were in these secular organizations right. than less religious people were. And I think that that gets to something really interesting, which is it's a community of people who share your experiences, as you've said, and who also share your values to a certain extent, that you can trust not only that they know what you're going through, but that what they think of as your best interest is similar to what you think of as your best interest, that they're not, you know, sneakily trying to convert you or anything. That resonates a lot when we talk about not just alcohol abuse and not just even the opioid epidemic, which I think is kind of the locus of a lot of the hot takes about, you know, what do people need to be strong in their lives right now? But kind of a lot of the culture war stuff we have going on with Jordan Peterson and this argument of, you know, do you need to adopt this entire cosmic worldview to clean your room and do other things that kind of seem non-controversial, like people should do them? The 
idea that you can have a group of people around you, that you can choose that group, that you don't have to be a kind of atomized individual trying to figure everything out on your own. But that group doesn't require you to sign on to an entire cosmology, that it, you know, you don't have to accept a higher power in whatever capacity, that you can build that network of people around you and trust that because you have a certain shared understanding of the world, they can help you to do what you know you want to do but don't feel capable of. Seems like a really powerful idea that doesn't, you know, that that doesn't necessarily seem limited to this stuff. But what I'm kind of wondering here is how easy is it for people to kind of just fall into these things, especially if we're talking about, you know, some of these alternatives are also open to people who struggle with things other than alcohol and smart actually is open to people who struggle with things other than alcohol and drugs. But like, what are the implications of this for other addictions and even for kind of other what we might call socially negative behaviors, other things in which people might not feel capable of, I guess, being their best selves. Right. So one thing I should say is that like the the study for just 12 steps regarding non-alcohol drugs, it's awful. So like we, we basically have no good data suggesting whether like 12-step programs do work for somebody with opioid addiction. And then the data for these other groups, I mean, is basically non-existent. And that's pretty bad in the context of the opioid epidemic because, like, a lot of people are pushed to, like, Narcotics Anonymous in in response to their opioid addiction. And we really don't know if it works for them. Like, anecdotally, I can tell you some people who have had bad experiences and some people who have had good experiences. But I have no idea what, like, the statistical outcome is in that. And is that in your anecdotal experience, is that related at all to kind of the religiosity as- aspect of it or? That's a that's a big aspect to it. I mean, I have talked to like atheists who are in AA or NA and sometimes they'll pick and choose what works for them. So they'll like pretty much shut out the spiritual aspect and just focus on what works for them, which is like having the social support in these meetings. And they'll just kind of ignore the references to God or um, whatever other spiritual powers people have in mind and that kind of thing. But yeah, I think that the key thing to emphasize here is that like with with addiction and really other mental health issues and even a bunch of other social issues, it's the, the what matters here is like providing a range of alternatives. I mean, addiction is extremely individualized. What gets people to start using drugs, why they keep using drugs in a certain way, and why they might have trouble quitting using drugs or reducing how much they use drugs. All of that, every step of the way is very individualized. And that's like what researchers emphasize. Like you need a bunch of options to actually deal with this. And for some people, it might be medications. For some people, it might be cognitive behavioral therapy. For some reason, it might be mutual help groups. One of these, maybe a couple of them, maybe all of the above, like medications, psychological treatments, and one of these mutual help groups. Like, it, it really is going to vary from person to person. I mean, even in the context of the opioid epidemic, we have really good medications to treat opioid addiction. So we have methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. And these are, like, really effective. They reduce the mortality rate by half or more among people with opioid addiction. But they don't work for everyone, right? And, like, even even those medications, which are, like, the gold standard for opioid addiction, will not work for everyone. So, like, it's important to just always keep these alternatives in mind and have alternatives available to people. And, and in this case, the problem is, like, if I know somebody who has an addiction and I want to get them into treatment, in most parts of the country, the only option is going to be a 12-step treatment facility. Like, they're the most likely to not just be around but have an opening, right, because they're going to be much more numerous. So I'm not going to know if that works for whoever I'm trying to get into treatment. And that that creates huge problems. Like, it, it, they might get into this 30-day, 60-day, whatever program and come out and just start using drugs again because it was just not the right approach for them. So we really need to start, like, looking at this research and taking seriously the the possibility that people are just different and they're going to need different approaches. Part of this that seems kind of underexplored is insofar as we're talking about human connection and kind of people going through things together, it seems like they're – have been some efforts to figure out whether the internet works. There's kind of one study that gets mentioned in here of trying to test in-person smart meetings versus some kind of online intervention. But the the authors say that the data in there wasn't really good enough to figure out what was going on. But it seems like 
Well, I mean, I guess it seems like this could be an avenue to explore more. Does this have to be an in-person relationship or can it be something that's developed virtually? But I guess in order to get there, we'd have to first accept that 12-step programs are not like – that the special sauce is not like the coffee at the 12-step program. (laughs) Yeah, and this is like uh, an interesting problem. Like the the cases that really worry me in covering addiction are somebody who's like in – rural West Virginia or Wyoming or something like that, where like getting to any sort of treatment at all is going to be an hours long drive. Like that would interfere with their work and, and that kind of thing, their family. And that's that's really what worries you. So if like something like if it is a social support and you can like create the social supports through like teleconferencing or just, I don't know, chats on online or something like that, then that's that's super important, and like that that'll help a lot of people who simply they, they either can't be helped right now or have to go seriously out of their way in their lives to get help. And if the idea with addiction, like the biggest thing is to make it as accessible as possible, because you want to capture people when they have that thought of, okay, I know I have this problem, I need to do something about it. And like if you have barriers along the way, then people are much more likely to – I don't want to say make excuses because that's not that's not really the right way to look at it. But they'll like be much more likely to say, OK, I, I can't – I mean I want to get help, but I can't do it because I would have to take time off work and I can't do that. I would have to drive two hours away. I don't have a car. Uh, well, I have to rent a car. And like you start creating all these barriers for yourself and like that's going to make it much less likely that you get help. And this is uh, – again, going back to – like the beginning, this is a huge problem in terms of like how many people it affects. I mean, we're talking just alcohol use disorder alone affects more than 20 million people in the U.S. And there are 88,000 alcohol-related deaths each year in the U.S. Not all of those are addiction-related. A lot of those are people who uh, like might have had one bad night and gone into a car crash or something like that. But it's a huge public health issue just with alcohol, not to mention with the opioid epidemic and other drugs. And and so the idea should be to remove as many barriers as possible. And on that, not exactly optimistic, but given that we spent the first half hour of this episode talking about families getting separated, relatively optimistic note. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Herman, to joining us. Thanks, Tara Goljan and Ellen Nielsen to joining us in the first segment. Thanks to our producer, Bridget Armstrong, and our engineer, Griffin Tanner. Remember to subscribe to The Weeds on iTunes or wherever podcasts are accessed for you. Join our Facebook group, which is generally a beam of sunshine in an otherwise terrible Facebook wasteland. And we will be back with an Ask Weeds Anything episode on Friday. And on Tuesday, we will be back with a somewhat regular The Weeds. See you then.